0: Om sthapakaya chadharmasya sarva dharmasvarupene avatara varishtaya rama krishna yate namaha jananim saradam devim rama krishnam jagadgurum padapadme tayo shrittva pranamami mohur moho namasri rajaya vivekananda surai sachid sukhasvarupaya swamine ta paharine Om sahana bhavatu sahana bhunaktu sah karavāvahai karavahai tejasvinavadhitamastu ma vidvishavahai Om shanti shanti shantihi harihi om revered Swami Yogatmanji Maharaj. Um, dear friends, good morning. And I'm happy to be here with you this beautiful morning in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, Swami kindly arranged for a trip for me. We went to uh, Anisquam, a village close by, where Swami Vivekananda, more than a hundred years ago, he delivered his pu- first public talk in the United States there. People know about his famous talk at the Chicago Parliament of Religions, but this was before that, a few days before that. And that was in the uh, church, village church in uh, Anisquam. And uh, one thing which strikes you if you come from California is that it's so green here. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's green and uh, it's really a sight for sore eyes. Um, When the Swami asked me to plan a retreat, I selected this subject because this Upanishad is Swami Vivekananda's uh, favorite Upanishad, the Katha Upanishad. And he would often quote from it many times in Swami Vivekananda's lectures. You come across a lucid talk, you know, little realizing, little do we realize that he's actually Translating freely, translating and adapting from the original Vedic Sanskrit of the Upanishads. Um, among all the Upanishads, probably Katha Upanishad was his favorite. So that's one reason. And uh, this is a storehouse of wisdom. So we cannot hope to go through all of that um, in a in one day retreat. Though Swamiji has kindly increased the time. We have got one extra class today. Uh, in the afternoon. Even then, it would take um, weeks to complete this text. It's a treasury of spiritual wisdom. Now, what I have done is I have selected a few of uh, verses, a few mantras from this Upanishad, which we shall discuss in depth. I see that many of you are taking notes so I will tell you the takeaway from each of the three talks that we shall have today. And then there'll be question answers. So you can take down notes. And also I'll tell you at the end, there'll be some time for interaction introduction at the end of each talk. And uh, then we shall go on to the next talk. And finally, there'll be a question answer session at the end of the day, where we can discuss things more threadbare. You can ask questions. You can write down questions from each of the three talks. If you don't get a chance to ask them at the end of each talk, you can still ask them at the question-answer session. Now, the way I have planned it is, this is an introductory and preparatory talk. But that doesn't mean it's not important. If I would say it's the most important because it lays the foundation for what is going to follow. This talk will be more in the psychological, ethical domain, the preparations for spiritual life. And then in the second and third talks, we shall move into the more spiritual, metaphysical domains. Now, we are all sitting here in the Vedanta society. And we know, most of us, we have been coming here for quite some time, so we know. Vedanta, the word Vedanta, it means Upanishads. In fact, the definition of Vedanta, when we study what Vedanta is one of the definitions we come across is in Sanskrit, Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. Vedanta is nothing but the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. What is Vedanta? Vedanta is the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. Collectively taken, the Upanishads are Vedanta. There is no difference. That is a central text of Vedanta. The Vedas are the core spiritual uh, religious texts of the Hindus. They are also the most ancient religious literature available to humanity. And in the Vedas, towards the end of the Vedas, sometimes, or sometimes in the middle, you find these texts called Upanishads. These Upanishads are part of the Vedas and you find them sometimes towards the end, sometimes in the middle. Since they are sometimes found towards the end, One reason why they are called Vedanta, Vedanta literally means Veda-anta, the end of the Vedas. So that's one reason, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is that it is the culmination, the highest teaching, the final teaching, the final conclusion, anta means nirnaya also in Sanskrit, Uh, final conclusion that the Vedas come to about human life. The highest spiritual knowledge, the highest philosophy that you can find in the Vedas is in the Upanishads so in that sense Upanishads are the end of the Vedas the culmination the last word of the Vedas hence Vedanta the end of the Vedas and these Upanishads are many in number but all of them all of them come to one and the same conclusion what is that conclusion? that we all of us we are essentially divine God and man, the human and the divine are one and the same reality at its essence. not as we know ourselves, as we know ourselves, we are not very godlike, far from it. And if I say you're God, Upanishad say, Asi. that thou art, you are God. and now we are likely to get who me? You're talking about somebody else, not me. I don't feel particularly godlike. but um, not as we know ourselves. As we really are. And how do we know ourselves as we really are? That is what the Upanishad teaches us. To find out this divinity within ourselves. Swami Vivekananda said, The essence of religion is that each soul is potentially divine. And the goal of life is to realize this, to manifest this divinity within. And there are different ways of doing it. And he says, This is a religion. He says, This is the core of religion. All religions in different language, different mythology, Different philosophies; they try to come to this truth. Nowhere have I found it put forward so plainly, so directly, and so gloriously as the most ancient of these religious texts, the Upanishads. Now, these Upanishads are many in number. We find a list of at least 108 authentic Upanishads in one of the Upanishads themselves, the Muktik Upanishad. But there are other lists. It seems there are more than a thousand of these Upanishads. Many are lost. Some are of dubious uh, authenticity, may have been composed at later times and introduced. But non-controversially, we take what were called ten major Upanishads. Why major? Major only in the sense that about 1400 years ago, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived in the East or the West, Adi Shankaracharya, who was in the south of India, in Kerala, though he travelled all over India, Adi Shankaracharya, he, 1400 years ago in India, he selected 10 of these Upanishads. By the time of Shankaracharya, the Upanishads themselves were already very ancient. When Shankaracharya himself came along, the Upanishads were maybe at least 3000 years old, 30 centuries old. And he selected 10 of these Dating um, in civilizations in India is always a problem. Even conservatively, if you date the, what is now called the Harappan or Saraswati Valley Civilization, it goes back, when we were school children, it went, we read it went back to at least conservatively, without controversy. It went back to 4,000 years or more. And now they have pushed it back to more than 8,000 years. Just recent uh, evidence shows that it's more than 8,000 years old. So it's it's pretty old. <laughs> I remember uh, first time I visited the United States um, in January last year. Um, they were showing me around. I said, "This place is really old." You know, this San Francisco is an old city, and we have old buildings which are more than a some of them are more than a hundred years old. I said, "Oh, really." <laughs> in bengal where our head, our main monastery is and where i come from the oldest buildings are not very old by indian standards i remember we were taking a group of young monks novices on a tour of religious places this place called vishnupur in bengal and the oldest uh, bengal vaishnava temples are there which date back to 500 to 600 years and they were saying proudly it's 600 years old which is old But I would see the, the monks who have come from the south of India, they're standing and smiling slightly. (laughs) Because there, it's, unless it's at least a thousand years old, no temple or structure is considered to be very old or very particularly distinguished. So, it's relative. But the Vedas are old by any standard. And of these non-controversially, non-controversially old Upanishads, standard Upanishads which Shankaracharya selected, for writing commentaries ten of these um, in the Himalayas where these are the standard texts, the monks have a little verse to memorize the nam- names of the ten Upanishads so they will recite it, it goes like this uh, it goes like this Isha Kenakatha Prashna Mundamandukya Titiri Aitareyam so, these are the ten Upanishads. Isha, Kena, Katha, the one which I've selected. Prashna, Mundaka Upanishad, Mandukya Upanishad, Taittiri Upanishad, Aitare Upanishad, and Chandogya Upanishad and Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. The last two are really big, but the others are smaller ones. And um, Katha Upanishad is also fairly small. It has uh, two chapters, each with three sections. But it's still too big to do in one day. So what I have done is, I selected some of the best mantras from that. And uh, we shall delve deep into it. So all of these Upanishads, without exception, they say that we are one with God. We are one with God. God, the term is not used in the Upanishads, the term is Brahman. And Brahman literally means vast, the infinite. And we, if we would only know ourselves, Swami Vivekananda would sometimes say in this country, with a look of sorrow sometimes on his face, he would look at people and say, if only you knew yourself as you truly are. If only you knew yourself as you truly are. Meaning thereby, if we would really know the truth about ourselves, all our problems would be solved. You see, what is the purpose of all of this? The purpose of all of this exercise in the Upanishads is the very highest, the highest possible goal in human life. That is overcoming suffering and attainment of bliss. Overcoming suffering and attainment of bliss. That we'll go into slowly uh, later on. Now this this uh, Upanishad, some of the Upanishads, they have stories. Many of these Upanishads are in the form of dialogues between the teacher and the taught. And uh, this Upanishad is no exception. And this has a particularly cute story, this Upanishad. And you can see the story there on the screen. (laughs) You see, um, it begins with uh, a typical Vedic landscape where Vajasravasa, who is a very pious man, he's performing a Vedic sacrifice. Now, in those days, 30 centuries ago, Religion meant fire sacrifices. Today, if you go to Hinduism, it's very different. Hinduism evolves organically. So, Hinduism today is temples. Nowadays, there are a lot of Hindu temples in the United States. So, if you go, you will see deities and worship with um, rituals and so on. But you'll always see a, a sacred flame burning. A little, a little lamp always will be there for pujas now that lamp takes us back to the days of the beginning of hinduism uh, if you can speak about the beginning of an eternal religion sanatana dharma but in ancient days there were these huge fire sacrifices there were no big temples or images none of it was there it started with fire sacrifices where a fire would be lit and offerings would be given to the gods and the fire was like a messenger which took your offerings to 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 the various deities now One of the fire sacrifices entailed that the performer would have to give away gifts. And uh, not just any gift or any set of gifts, but everything. Everything. You give everything away. And why would you want to do that? The idea is to gain merit. Punyam. The Sanskrit word is punyam. The idea is to gain merit. Why would you want to gain, gain merit? It's like, think of it like credit in your bank so there is this cosmic bank where all the accounts are maintained for all of us our karma balance swami vivekananda puts it very beautifully good good bad bad and none escape the law what is the law if you do good things the results will be good the results are called that the merit you you earn a lot of merit by that punyam by doing dharma which is good and by doing that which we know to be bad, consciously, knowingly, if we do something that we know to be bad, then that's called adharma, immoral. And the res, and the, we, we get a demerit. And uh, you run up debts, karmic debts, and the result is bad. What is a good result? Very simple. Sukham, happiness. What's a bad result? Dukham, suffering. And so they say, Whatever we are experiencing in our lives, throughout our lives, whatever we are experiencing is the results of our past karmas coming to us. Now this is how the Indians understand good and evil. It's not God punishing us or God rewarding us for what we have done. Rather, it's us. What we are today is what we have labored for, for, from since ancient times, we have constructed, we have built up this life which we have got today. But it's also a message of hope. It's not fatalism, though it has often been interpreted as fatalistic. It's a message of hope that what we shall do today will determine our lives, our our future. And it's very interesting to note that this law of karma, good, good, bad, bad, this law of karma is accepted not only by all Hindus but by all Buddhists by all Jains and all Sikhs, in fact, all Indic religions, those which had their origins in, in India, all of them accept this law of karma, though they are very different among each other. The Buddhist won't accept an eternal God or eternal soul, but they all accept the law of karma and they all accept this whole idea of many lives, this whole idea of many lives, that we have ha- had other lives earlier and we are likely to have other existences after death, this idea... If you just exercise our minds a little logically, philosophically, we shall see it comes directly from the law of karma. If what we do will give rise to results, then all the results we will not experience in this lifetime. Hence, we need more lifetimes. And what we do, what we are getting now, what we are experiencing now is the result of past causes. Our little life is not enough to explain what we have got right now. So there must have been past lives. So many lives is a consequence of the law of karma. Today, how to be happy is an important question, and nowhere more so than in the United States. The pursuit of happiness is uh, part of the creed of the United States. uh, One of the wonderful ideas on which this nation was founded, one of the great ideas, freedom and the pursuit of uh, happiness, your own dreams. You are free to pursue happiness in your own way. And so if you go to any bookshop, the self-help sections are they always full of new titles. And one of the themes will be happiness. How do we become happy? And there are all sorts of books. But the Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs, the ancient Indians had a very simple answer for this. The law of karma. If you want nice things to happen to you, if you want to have a pleasant life, then do good things. Do good. Think good thoughts, say good things and do good things. If you're going to think bad thoughts and say bad things and do things which you know to be wrong, then the result will be unhappiness. So this, but it won't fill a shelf of books in the self-help section. So if you have a lot of good karma, you have a pleasant life. And one more thing, let me just add here, because it's relevant. In the Uttarakhand, in, in, in the Himalayas, in India, the monks believe one more thing. That if you have a really a lot of good karma, good karma, pleasant life, lots and lots of good karma. And I'm not making this up when I, te- when I tell you what they say. If you have lots and lots of good karma, you come to Vedanta. They actually say this, yes. It doesn't have to be sectarian. You come to spiritual life. You have spiritual questions. You have spiritual seeking. You're no longer satisfied with just a pleasant life, with the life which we are having. Seek for meaning, seek for the purpose of life, seek for the goal of life. And that's what Vedanta is all about. Vedanta, you can see it as the central philosophy of religion. I'm saying not just central philosophy of Hinduism. To my way of understanding and to the way of understanding we have in the Ramakrishna order, Vedanta society, it's the central philosophy of any religion. The core idea. Without this, it doesn't make sense. So, the Upanishads begin with this story in um, Katha Upanishad. In the Katha Upanishad, which forms part of the Yajur Veda, one of the Vedas. The story begins with Nachiketa, little boy, his father performing one of these big fire sacrifices to earn merit. So that he'll have a pleasant life in this life and after death he hopes to go to heaven. That used to be the goal of uh, many, many Indians in those days. You go to heaven after death. Nowadays the goal is mostly you come to USA. <laughs> <laughs> so not in the next life, in this life itself. You earn enough merit to come to the United States. Uh but the goal was to go to heaven and Nachiketa's father, little boy's father, thought no differently. It's not a particularly spiritual goal. Have a pleasant life in this uh, life and after death, you go for a much more pleasant life in heaven. And so he performed this sacrifice and he was giving away gifts. And the little boy, Nachiketa, he saw something strange and funny happening. As little children often are, they're very direct. You know, uh, he sees that, uh, his father was supposed to give away all his wealth, and wealth in those times meant, um, cattle, cows, because it was a very agrarian society. And the more cattle you had, the more wealth you And Not very different from this country, what it was a hundred years ago. So, we all grew up reading stories of cowboys in Ui- USA. So, that was wealth, uh, and you can understand why it would be so. And Nachiketa's father is supposed to give away that wealth. And, Nachiketa sees his father is keeping the good cows aside <laughs> and the cows which are not giving any milk will not give any more calves and you know are, uh, are sick or something otherwise. He's donating all of that <laughs> to the gifts, uh, to, to, the, to the visitors who have come for the big ritual. And Nachiketa, the Upanishad says, Shraddha avivesha that faith entered into him. You know, a sense of right and wrong, good and bad, enters into this little boy. And he sees this is not right. Now, he can't directly speak out and tell his dad that you are cheating. But he goes about it in an intelligent way. And he says to his dad, So once in a while, I'll use the original Sanskrit. It gives a flavor of uh, the ancient language. To whom will you give me, dad? Because I belong to you too. I'm your son. So you give everything, you're giving everything away, so you, you're supposed to give me away too. Um, though originally in the sacrifice you're not supposed to give your own son away, but he's making a point here. To whom will you give me? The first time his dad ignores him, he thinks that the boy is being fresh. Second time his dad ignores him. Third time when he asks this, his father loses his temper and he says, <laughs> I give thee to death. I give thee to death. Sort of um, the Sanskrit version of go to the other place. His <laughs> dad you know, that, that is furious. And the little boy takes it seriously. He says, why would you want to do that? I'm not a bad boy. And he says, and you can see how little kid he is. He, he says, I'm not really bad. My grades are pretty good. Actually, he says this. I am not... Uh, I'm not, I'm first in many things, top of my class in many things. I'm about halfway between in many other things. And nowhere I'm at the bottom, which means my grades are really good. Why would you want to give me away to death? But what could he do? His father's words have been spoken. So the little boy has to go to the house of death. And the little boy, because it's a story. So the little boy goes to the house of death, forthwith. Now death is out. He's a busy man. He's on tour. He has a lot of clients he goes calling on. They don't like him. They don't want him to come. But uh, uh, he's going there. Uh, and he, he's going he's on his rounds, you know. And nobody says that. You're not expected. It's too early. I don't want to die. You should give advance notice. And death usually says, I gave you advance notice. The first gray hairs, advance notice. Your teeth falling out, advance notice. <laughs> uh-huh. This problem and that problem coming, advance notice. I gave lots of advance notice and now I'm here. And he's someone who doesn't take no for an answer. (laughs) Now he comes back after three days. Three days he comes back and a little boy refused all offers of food and drink. He sits there waiting for death to come. And death's secretary or somebody, and I'm not making it up, it's all there in the open issue. It doesn't say secretary, but somebody uh, tells death, the Lord of Death, Yama, that's the guy there. On, the, he's pretty tough-looking guy. He rides on a bull and carries a huge mace. Um, they they uh, they tell him that there's a little boy who has come and who's been waiting for you for three days, and he hasn't eaten. And it's not good for a person if you if a guest comes to your house and and you don't take care of him. So death goes to the little boy and says, "Little boy, you haven't eaten for three days." Um, I'll give you three boons to make up for your suffering. You can ask me for any three things. And Natchiketa asks one by one. And you can see, after all, he's a little boy. The first thing he asks is, when I go back to my dad's house, let my dad not be mad at me (laughs) anymore. Uh, He's feeling pretty bad and lonely. He's alone. Recently, you must have seen in the paper, there's a very heartbreaking story of uh, a Japanese couple. Mm -hmm. The little boy was misbehaving, so they left him in a forest with bears in the forest. And the boy was lost for seven days, but they found him finally. And the father was just disciplining him. He said, we don't don't want you, get out. And the boy was, so the, the boy feels bad. My dad is mad at me. But you see how how intelligent he is. He doesn't waste a boon. He could have said, I've come to death, but I don't want to die. I want to go back. So that's the first boon. Let me go back to the living. The second boon is my father won't be mad at me. But he combines them and he says, when I go back. <laughs> so it, it's like the person who says, uh, when God appears before him and, asks, and says, I'll give you a boon. He says, I want to eat uh, with my grandchild on silver and gold cutlery with uh, with, uh, with uh, dishes and all, which means he's going to live long enough to see his grandchildren, and he's going they're going to be uh, and he's going to have grandchildren. And he's going to be rich enough to have gold and silver, um, uh, you know, silverware and and dishes and all. So in one boon, and Nachiketa does that when I when I go back. Not if when I go back to my dad, my dad shouldn't be mad at me anymore, and. Yama says, yes, given. And Nachiketa, he's a child of his times. So he knows what religion is of those days, the big sac- fire sacrifices. And he knows all the grown-ups want to go to heaven. So the second boon he asks for, which is the highest heaven? And they have got different heavens. In Hinduism, we have got seven worlds, one above the one, each more subtle than the other and each better than the other. Don't be tempted. <laughs> uh, they are all very tempting, but... We're not going that, down that road now. But Najiketa says, what's the way to go to the highest heaven? Teach me the best of these fire sacrifices. And, uh, Yama does that. Yama teaches him the best fire sacrifice that there is. And he says, okay, time for your third boon. Ask for your third boon. I'm reminded of, uh, about, that was some 16 years ago, when I was a new monk, a brahmachari, we call that a uh, novice in the place where I joined, Ramakrishna Mission, Vidyapit Deoghar, it's a school for little kids like Nachiketa. And a very senior Swami, Swami Atmasthanandaji, he was visiting, he was the general secretary of our order at that time, he was visiting that particular center. And we had put together a little play, Yama and Nachiketa, for him. him. And, And all the teachers would attend and all the parents would come for the play and the school kids would put on that play. And they rehearsed and rehearsed. Uh, and it was a disaster. <laughs> so, a um, little boy had was Nachiketa, and a rather um, hefty kid was Yama. And they forgot their lines, and one of the swamis had said, the most important parts, let the students stand there, and from the back, I will chant in Sanskrit. The originals should be chanted in Sanskrit, the most important parts. The rest of it was in Hindi. And when the time came for him to chant, we looked around and he had gone for a restroom break at that time. (laughs) And the kids were standing and looking back at us, you know, and we felt so bad we couldn't do it. We were shrugging from there. And the audience was booing and they were falling over each other, laughing. They found it cute, but the kids were sweating it out. And finally, when it came, time came for the third boon. And Yama asks the kid, ask for your third boon, what do you want? And from the audience, somebody said, Tell him I don't want anything. It will bring this play to a close. (laughs) At least we'll be saved of our further suffering. But Nachiketa asks a question. He asks a question that some people say that there is nothing after death. This is the end. Some people say that there is something after death. Something survives death. What is the nature of that which survives death? So he's asking a question about the reality of ourselves. He's asking, who am I? Who are we? What are we? Are we creatures of flesh and blood, material creatures? We have material bodies, there's no doubt about it. And these bodies will come to an end. If that's all we are, then that's it. Or is there something more to it? Is there some, some reality of the human being in depth? Not just a physical body. Something beyond that. Something survives death. And if so, what is that which survives death? Is it something changing like the mind? Is it something beyond the mind? So he's asking a very deep question. He's asking the fundamental question of spiritual life. What are we or who are we? That's the question he's asking. And he's asking it to death. Now here is something profound. Very recently I read this book, very interesting book called The Denial of Death. By Professor Ernest Becker. It was a Pulitzer Prize winner, I think, in 1974. It's a book based on psychoanalysis, but a profound book nevertheless. Now don't go out and order it on Amazon. It's a profoundly depressing book also. <laughs> but very, very, very deep. And the one fundamental fact of our life is death. Spiritual life, you will find some people believing in religion, some people believing in different religions, some people not believing in religions, some people are atheists, some are agnostics. Different kinds of beliefs or no belief at all. But one thing is certain for all of us, and that is death. There is no doubt about it. Swami Vivekananda puts it so powerfully. Kings die and beggars die. Saints die and sinners die. The most learned of people and the most ignorant of persons also dies. All of them die. Death is certain. It's the one certainty of our life. It's this truth which made a prince into the Buddha. Prince Siddhartha, when he saw Gautama when in the north of India 2,500 years ago, he saw the fact of old age, sickness and death finally. And he said, what is the way out from this? Is there a way out of this? That's a fundamental question in spiritual life. Facing up to death, and this professor says one of the characteristics of our lives is we deny death. Deny death. Nobody actually logically denies death, but we live and behave and think as if we are not going to die. We see people dying every day, and yet we live as if we are never going to die. In the Mahabharata, there's this: um, the prince Yudhishthira was asked a question uh, by a celestial being. What is the great strangest thing about life? The most amazing thing. And he says, ahani ahani bhutan. He says, Every day, people are passing out before our lives. Our grandparents have gone, our parents are going, and soon it is time for us to vacate the, this stage of life. Even tragically, young people die too. And yet, we be- behave as if nothing has happened. We mourn and we go on. And we do exactly the same things everybody is doing. And we go on like this. Professor calls it a fundamental fact of our uh, life, denial of death. Now, he goes deeper and he says, death actually cannot be denied. We are ignoring it. But if you ignore it, it won't go away. It expresses itself in different ways in our life. Think about it. He says, we are haunted by death in disguise in our life. Think about it. If we miss one meal... Just food, lunch, by some accident, by some problem. How anxious we become. Just no harm if you miss a meal, but we become anxious. If we get a little pain or a little fever, a little cough, we become so anxious about it. You see, why? The reason is, we become overly anxious about it. The reason is, this professor says, is that it it shows that at any time this thing, what we call our life, can fall apart. That's the anxiety which haunts us at the back of our minds. That this life can fall apart. And this is what haunts us. And to cover up this, he says, we, he calls it immortality projects. We have immortality projects. Immortality projects, it could be in politics, it could be in business, it could be in art or science. Or he says, even the, the, the ordinary man on the street Struggling to make do with his family life and bring up a family and uh, earn money, get property. All of these, whatever we call the business of life, these are the immortality projects he speaks about. And he says, and yet all of these are doomed to failure. Because one day we are going to die and leave all of these behind. So it's very interesting that this little boy goes to death and asks what lies beyond. He says... Tell me what lies beyond. You are the best teacher in this, in this case. And death says, don't ask me that question. He says, ask me anything else. Ask me for any other boon, but don't ask me that question. And he gives, he tempts, temptation with a capital T. He tempts this child. Uh, he says, you want wealth, I'll make you the richest man on earth. You want land, I'll make you the greatest king on earth. And you want Heavenly pleasures which, he says, such pleasures which are not available to ordinary run of mankind. I shall give you those things also in this life. But don't ask me about what lies beyond death. And Nachiketa, he's testing Nachiketa of course. And Nachiketa's reaction is important. That should be our reaction if we want to walk on the spiritual path. His reaction is, as long as you are there, O oh death, none of this matters. Because it will all come to an end. It will all come to an end. The best of lives and the worst of lives will come to an end very soon. Even if you give me the longest life, the richest life, most fulfilling life, it still come to an end. At the moment when it comes to an end, all of it will, have, will be as nothing. Because it's all gone. It's all gone. Nothing is eternal in what you are offering. Nothing is permanent in what you're offering, and all the pleasures you speak about—they tire down, they wear down the human system. You know, sarvendriyani jarayanti teja in Sanskrit. He says all our systems are worn down by trying to enjoy the world. How much can a person eat? We speak about the billionaires. How much of that can they spend? They're working tremendously hard for the next billion. When they're taken away by Yama, Yama pays them a visit and then. Gone. How much of those billions could they spend? I met this very interesting person. In in Hollywood you meet interesting people. So, strange people. And a lot of homeless people. I met a very strange homeless man. This person um, at a particular place, we were standing and talking and this person came up and he was listening to me talk about Vedanta. And he was asking the most intelligent questions. And then people asked him, who are you? This is a pro- gathering of professors from Caltech. So they thought he was a philosophy professor. And uh, he said, oh, I'm just, he had a French accent. I'm a tourist. Um, I'm homeless. We thought maybe it's true because there are so many homeless people around. And he looked very ordinary too. And then later on when we got talking, I got his number. He wanted my number and name. So I gave it to him and I asked for his name. And asked, what do you do? And he said, Google me. <laughs> and I googled him, and it's true, he's homeless. If you google, homeless billionaire, if you google, he's actually famous on the net. If you just google, it, immediately it will come up. He's this guy, he has sold off all his homes, so he has no home, he lives on his private jet. So, <laughs> he's a homeless billionaire. But how much can you spend of that? How much can you spend it on yourself? So, Nachiketa says at the end, Tavai tava You keep your song and dance and your chariots and all these things, heavenly pleasures, all of that. And he says, take these and don't ask me. And Nachiketa replies, like, a, you know, like a, just like a little kid. He says, you keep all that. You can enjoy it. I want the answer to my question. <laughs> and Yama is happy. He says, how I wish all spiritual enquirers were like you. This is exactly what a spiritual inquirer should be like. Now, he starts his teaching. I'm going to select a few verses, as I said, and the first one, he, he talks about a very important thing, simple idea. And he says, most important point, the, the beginning point of his, his talk is the power of choice if you are going to take something away from this talk, the first talk is this power of choice. He says, Anya Shreya Anya Duteiva Preya Te ube Nanate Purusham Sinita Tayo Shreya Adadanasya Sadu Bhavati Hiyate Arthad Yau Preyo Vrnute He says, At every moment in our lives, two things come to us. The pleasant and the good. The pleasant, nice. And that which is good for us. Unfortunately, they are not the same all the time. Two things come to us at every moment in our lives. The pleasant and the good. Now the person, and and if you choose one, it will take you to one goal. If you choose the Ah. other, it will take you elsewhere. So there are two of them, and they take you to two very different locations, two, two very different ends. The one who chooses the good will reach his goal. The Upanishad just says his goal. It means a spiritual goal, but it could be any goal in human life. The one who chooses that which is good. The one who takes the easy way out, the pleasant way out, falls away from the goal. And You might say it's very simple. But it's very important. It's a power of choice. It's one of the greatest powers that we have. Every moment we have the power of choosing, choosing what? We have the power to choose what we will do, what we will do the next moment. You say, Swami, I can't control myself, what I'll do? I I plan to do many things, I have to-do lists, I have resolutions, New Year's resolutions. They last for two or three days at the most. The mistake we are making is and follow this carefully the mistake we are making is we make a resolution now we shall do it for next one year not that way you do it for the next one hour half an hour one minute and then then take another decision to do it for the next half an hour next one hour take another decision who told you that you cannot take a fresh fresh resolution fresh decision every minute you can every minute is a new minute Every second is a new second. And every minute offers us, Upanishad says, the two come to us together. And you have to choose one or the other. How do I know which is good for me? We all know. In one of the uh, Socrates, uh, dialogues, Socrates dialogues, Socratic dialogues, Phaedrus I think, um, Socrates says to the student, he says, my dear boy, do I have to tell you what is right and what is wrong? We all know it in our hearts. At least what's good for me. We have a generally good idea. So what is right and what is wrong, what is good for me and what is just nice, it comes to us all the time. You take a decision every moment, moment to moment. And if we take consistent decisions, you will see miraculously our New Year's resolutions and all our goals in life, they are all fulfilled just like that. So what decisions do we take? What to do, number one. More important, more important. What to say and what not to say. Even more important, what to think and what not to think. Oh, I can't control my thoughts, swami. Wait, the same principle applies. We cannot control our thoughts for 15 minutes, half an hour, one hour. But we can control it for 30 seconds, 10 seconds, 5 seconds. The next moment is one moment I can control it. Take a decision the next moment again. Fail, forget to take a decision. Doesn't matter. Take one immediately the moment you remember consistently taking decisions He's, he, the lord of death says you choose the truth choose that which is good for you sh- the Shreya and it will lead to you, you to your goal Peter Drucker management guru who strode like a giant in post second world war the field of management in, in, the, in the United States and the whole world he says we live in an age of choice He points out something interesting. Your grandparents, our grandparents did not have choice. For thousands of years, the vast majority of humanity in different civilizations did not have choice. What we shall eat, what profession we shall follow, what profession we shall follow, what your parents have done, grandparents have done. The vast majority of humanity did that. Where we shall believe, most people throughout the history of humanity were born and lived and died in the same place. Very few people got the chance to migrate. What shall we eat? What your parents and grandparents up to the last hundred generations have eaten? Mostly that. What shall we wear? What what shall we study? All of that was more or less predetermined. Humanity did not have much scope, much degrees of freedom. Earlier, except a very few extremely powerful people maybe at the top, vast majority did not have it. And Peter Drucker says it has changed in the last 50 years. Imagine, many of us here were born oceans and continents away. Many of us here, most of us I would, I would suspect, we do things which our parents or grandparents did not think of doing also. We eat food which they did not. Uh, ever think of eating. We wear clothes, we think thoughts, we watch TV shows, everything. You have enormous choice. One of the things which strikes an immigrant to this country is the supermarket. When you go in there and you see entire shelves of cereals or chocolates or something like that, choice. People may criticize it, but it's a fact. It's a fact that we have choice for the first time in mundane things and in deep and important things. And that choice gives us a heavy burden of responsibility also. How so? One more fact. He points out that, especially women have more choice today than they ever had, their uh, grandmothers had. Even their mothers had. Women have much more degrees of freedom and choice today, thanks to the feminist movement, the uh, rights movements in the last hundred years or so. so they did not even bound completely by so- social fetters for thousands of years. So this choice puts us at, uh, you know, we have to choose. Now it gives us tremendous responsibility. Drucker says young people, young people have to make certain choices by the time they are in the late teens or early 20s, which will determine what will happen to them, everything, where they will be. Whom they will uh, marry or not marry, whom, what job they will do, what, how much they will earn, what kind of life, the purpose of their life, everything will be more or less impacted upon by the decisions, choices they make in the early twenties. So it's a very big, very big uh, responsibility. Earlier, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And what we not what not to think about uh, uh, what is good for us. Yes. But is that does that hold true in all cases? Even about let's say grief about the depart uh was true, true So for example the Buddha I've read that uh, even after reaching enlightenment, when his king when heard that his kingdom was destroyed, he still grieved. True. All right, I'll come to that. It's a good question. Um a matter of choice, we'll, we'll explore that for a little while for the, with the time remaining to us. Um, there was an experiment conducted in Stanford University in the 60s and 70s. Walter Michel, a uh, well-known psychologist, he conducted this experiment uh, with little children, four-year-old, five-year-olds, and it's called the marshmallow test. It was <laughs> some of you have seen that. Uh, it was repeated he's now in uh, in Columbia University in New York Walter Michel. but it was repeated again by his colleague Philip Zimbardo who is a very famous psychologist his books psychology and life are in fact textbooks in university courses so Zimbardo's experiment which was much more recent has been recorded actually and you can see these videos on YouTube if you if you google um, Zimbardo and marshmallow test basically the idea was the importance of choice of willpower Uh, what he did was little children would be called into a room and the psychologist would offer them a marshmallow and say do you like marshmallows and child says yes by the way I didn't know what a marshmallow was until I came here to the United States I would read about it but uh, it's not a common sweet in uh, India so child says yes And um, sometimes children, one particularly smart, smart kid said, no, I don't like it. (laughs) But the psychologist was smarter than him. So he said, okay, do you like chocolate? He had chocolates in his pocket too. (laughs) And child said, yes. Now here is a marshmallow. If you want, you can eat it now. I'm going out for some work. But if you want two, do you want two? And this is important. Every child said, yes, I want two. In that case, what you do is just wait a little. Let me come back. I'll be back shortly. And then you don't eat it now. If you have not eaten it when I've come back, I'll give you one more. You'll have two. But in the meantime, if you eat it, you will have just the one. You I won't get the second one. Now, this is important. Every child said, I want to. Every child said, I will wait. But not every child waited. <laughs> and the videos are very cute. You, know, you can see the little children look, sitting there and looking at the door. Five or ten minutes is a long time for a four-year-old. Uh, why four-year-old? Because before that, no child waits. Almost no children wait. They don't understand that. After four-year-old, again, uh, the results are more skewed. But four-year-old, five-year-old is a good, good age to test this. The child looks at that, waits. Some children waited. Some children just waited, looked at the marshmallow, and they couldn't resist anymore, and ate it. So they got only one marshmallow. But what Walter Michel did was, without telling the children, he made two different lists. Those who waited, and those who did not wait. And 14 years later, he went back to those subjects. They had grown up. They were 18 year old, 19 year old now. And he went back to them and he found, he interviewed them, looked at their sc- school records, uh, interviewed their parents and friends and teachers and he found major differences. On the average, individuals, not, on the average, The children who waited performed much better at school, at music, at sports. They were much better regarded as responsible by their parents and teachers and uh, classmates. The the students who did not wait, on the average again, not individuals, on the average, performed poorly at uh, studies. You can understand why. This impulsiveness, I decide to do one thing, but I don't stick to it. I immediately do the next pleasant thing that comes along. You see, what is good? I wait, I'll get two. Two is better than one. What is pleasant? The one just now. Just now. Waiting is a sacrifice. The ability to project into the future that I will get something more in the future if I sacrifice now. That same psychology works out to I'll do my homework later. Let me go and watch the game. And stay up late at night and do my homework. Well, Late at night I feel sleepy, I'll get up tomorrow and do my homework. And that tomorrow never comes. And there's other kid who says, okay, I'll give up this game, I'll watch the next game, let me finish my work now. So it becomes a habit. That responsibility, the ability to do that. That impulse control. Walter Michel gave it a, a name, uh, postponing gratification. The ability to postpone gratification. He says that is the key to success in life, not IQ. Later on, Daniel Goleman developed it into EQ, emotional intelligence. And one of the comp- not all, but one of the components of this was the ability to postpone gratification. To forego that extra cookie if you are on a diet. To stick to a tough regime of work and exercise and family responsibilities day after day, month after month, year after year. That takes, that takes that kind of uh, ability to stick to it, to keep your eyes on the road, not to get distracted. And one teacher put this very beautifully. He says we tend to get distracted, by what's present right now in front of us? That's what advertisements try to do, what shops try to do. One uh, psychologist was saying how they design a shop. So the best-selling items they'll put. You enter into the right. Why to the right? Because most people when in they enter supermarket, they have studied it. They take a right turn. So the ones they want to sell are put the right there in the right turn. <laughs> things like that. They do did study it, say, human nature so carefully. So this ability to hold on to what we uh, want to do. The teacher put it so nicely. He says that when you are driving and there's rain and you switch switch on the wiper windshield wiper, so the thing goes like this. And if you get distracted by it, if you start doing. You're in trouble. The p- <laughs> you'll terrify the passengers. He says, what are you doing? You keep your eyes on the road. And no. <laughs> so this teacher put it very, very interestingly. He says, don't get distracted by this. That's its job. It'll keep doing that. You have to keep your eyes on the road in spite of that. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the good and the pleasant. The pleasant will keep appearing in front of you. You take your eyes off that and keep it on the good. Not just little children. It extends all the way up to corporate CEOs. You know, some of the causes of the present economic depression in the United States and all over the world is corporate greed. They couldn't take, they couldn't wait to get the results that were due to them. They wanted to have the marshmallow right now, the marshmallow of the higher returns, the the right away. And that's what led to the collapse of the system. At the heart, it's the same greed, which which uh, we could not resist. Thousands of years ago, in the Mahabharata, in the Mahabharata, Krishna teaches Gita to Arjuna, to the warrior princess. So that is the Bhagavad Gita, the dialogue between man and God. Now somebody said he should have taught it to Duryodhana, the evil prince. If he had taught, to give, give, given spiritual wisdom to the bad guy, then the war wouldn't have happened. You know, to to Duryodhana, why did he teach the good guy? Well, Krishna did try to teach Duryodhana, the bad guy, with very mixed results. <laughs> he went and tried to tell Duryodhana, what you're doing is not right. It is adharma. Dharma is morality, decency. You should do dharma. You're doing adharma, that which is immoral, indecent. And Duryodhana's answer was very profound. His answer was, he says, his answer is something that everybody in human life, everybody, all of us, we can identify with. He says, look, It's not my problem that that I'm not doing the good thing, I'm doing something bad. I know what is right and what is wrong. I know that. You don't have to tell me what is right, what is wrong. My problem is the right, what is right, I know it to be right, I don't feel like doing it. My problem is that which is bad, I know it to be bad. It's not good for me or anybody else, but I can't stop myself from doing it janami dharmam janami jana adharmam He says janami adharmam uh, nacame Vritti. janami dharmam nacame pravritti kenapi devena ridhi stitena yatha niyojito asmi tatha karomi some power is there within me he says which impels me to do this and i can't resist it now what he is doing in terms of this is not he's not taking the choice Every moment, he's not making the effort to choose whatever comes up from within. What comes up from within? Again, the law of karma. Whatever we have programmed ourselves to over many, many lifetimes. If you don't believe in many lives, over one lifetime of uh, habit. Whatever we have put into ourselves. That's what will come out. It's like a computer with a default setting. The moment you switch it on, I don't know if new computers do that. Earlier computers would say that. Um, should I go to the the MS-DOS or something like that uh, or the default they'll give you 10 seconds and then it goes on and does whatever it was programmed to do in those 10 seconds if you break it if, if you, you break that loading of the programs and you can do something else in the same way whatever is within us keeps coming up it's a default setting we do things by habit we speak by habit we think by habit yet At every moment, there is a choice. There is a small gap, just like that computer booting up a few seconds. In our case, not even a few seconds, less than a fraction of a second. There is a window of opportunity to exercise free will. There is a gap, a gap of consciousness. And this is has been confirmed by modern neuroscience, that there is a small gap where the the newer brain, the cognitive parts of our brain can actually take a rational decision, a cool decision. That's why they say you delay, it's wise saying, you know, that you delay important decisions. And don't act on impulse. So, that act lets our uh, more modern part of our brain, the evolved brain, act. So, neuroscience sup- supports this. In the Gita, when Krishna tries to teach Arjuna Arjuna says the same thing which Duryodhana said but with a slight difference. He says that um, uh, by what force does a person do wrong things? See, without even wanting to. He has made a resolution to do be good. To do good things in life. And yet slips again and again and again. By what force? Now, the difference between Arjuna and Duryodhana is this. Arjuna wants to change. Duryodhana is not interested in changing. Arjuna wants to change and he's looking for the way out. And Krishna tells him, kama esha There are these powerful forces. Anger and lust desire these boil up from within because of our past programming and tayorna vashama gacchetauhi asya paripanthino. he says in the gita krishna tells arjuna do not accept that programming they are enemies of your path enemies standing on your path which path any path to anything good in life your natural programming often is not according to what uh, you want in life so there you have to make a choice the moment they come up seize that window of opportunity and then substitute it I'm coming to what you are saying I haven't forgotten I'll give you how now with this background follow this carefully we'll see how meditation works and the mantra how it works you see what happens is the oldest manual of uh, meditation is the Patanjali Yoga Sutras and in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, there's a big Sanskrit and difficult Sanskrit commentary called the Vyasabhashya, where there are very nuggets of wonderful insights. In one place, it sh- gives us this, exactly how to do it. He says, the commentary on the Yoga Sutras, All our thoughts come from the subconscious mind. The word for that in Sanskrit is samskaras. The samskaras, we are not aware of that. The subconscious, below the level of our conscious awareness. But they bubble up, they boil up all the time. And when they come to the level of conscious awareness, we call them thoughts, emotions, feelings, desires. I want this, I hate that. Where does it come from? From our samskaras. When it comes up to the conscious level, the Sanskrit term is vritti. Vritti is a simple term, it means any modification in your conscious mind. A thought is a vritti, a memory is a vritti, a desire is a vritti, all of these are vrittis. Even perceptions are vrittis. So any modification, any wave in the um, lake of your mind is a vritti. When they boil up from within, the samskaras, tendencies, they come up as thoughts, feelings, desires, vrittis. And these vrittis which we entertain in our minds, again subside into the lake of the mind and strengthen or weaken existing samskaras. So you have a cycle. If you have a notebook, you make a cycle. At the bottom is samskara. Tendencies, accumulated tendencies. And then you draw a circle. At the top of the circle is vritti. Conscious thought, emotion, feeling. Any conscious event in your mind is a vritti. So the commentator says evam vritti samskara chakram aharnisham avartanam This wheel of vritti and samskara, tendency and conscious thoughts, feelings, emotions this wheel rotates when day and night. It rotates day and night through our lives. Now what do you do? You have no we have no power of the samskaras directly. We don't even know where they are stored. We can't change them. But here's the secret. We are aware of our vrittis, our feelings, desires which come up in the conscious mind. We are aware of that. Or we would be if we were a little calm and meditative and introspective. We can can be aware of that. And when these samskaras come up as vrittis, the tendencies come up as thoughts and emotions and desires, there's a moment, a gap, where they are weak, where they are not strong, they have not been expressed as language and action moment we start acting on it, they are very strong. Then it takes tremendous willpower to put the break. You may put the break one day, but you will stop putting the brakes the next two days. You can resist one cookie, but you will not resist the next two cookies. So, before it becomes action, before you have reached for that, when the thought comes up, if the mind is sufficiently calm, you will be aware of it. At that time, take that conscious decision. I will not think this, I will think that. I will not say this, I will say that. I will not do this, I will do that. It must start at the level of thought. If you try to stop it at the level of action, it takes too much effort. That's why people fail again and again to follow diets or whatnot. Any kind of uh, conscious plan of action. So, the interesting thing is, it gets easier as time goes on. Because remember, whatever we entertain in our conscious mind sinks back into those tendencies. And later on, After quite a while, those are the ones which will keep coming up. Then the programming becomes useful and good, then you don't have to struggle so much. Sri Ramakrishna puts it very beautifully. He says he used to live by a river and he would see boatmen struggling hard with the big poles to push against the river bottom to push their little boats out into the midstream. Once they caught the current... They would sit there with their hand on the rudder and he'd say they would smoke a Hubble bubble, you know, and they'll be relaxed. They'll put, just put their hand on the rudder and the boat will go along, carried along by the current. Similarly, as we meditate, as we consciously take the decision, when? Not once in a year, not on 31st December. Day to day, at least daily. You take a decision. Keep your decisions up on a whiteboard or something in front of you. I just tell students. It reminds you again and again. I'm taking a decision. Not that time. I'm taking it today. Fail a thousand times, absolutely no problem. But don't forget to take the decision again. You will find it gets easier. It's not easy at first. But it gets much easier. There's this story of a Zen teacher. um, Who the student came to him and said, I'm troubled by bad thoughts when I'm meditating. And the Zen teacher said, watch your thoughts. I do that, but I forget. Well, you do one thing. He gave him a pile of stones, little pebbles. You find in Japanese gardens, white and black. Whenever an undesirable negative thought or emotion comes to your mind while meditating, take a black pebble and put it in the bowl, this little bowl, porcelain bowl next to him. And when a good thought, emotion comes to your mind, take it and put it, or take a white pebble and put it there. So the students started meditating like that. And at the end of the first day, it was mostly black pebbles in the bowl. And so it was for days and days and days. Only one or two white pebbles. But as the months and years went by, there came a time when it was almost completely white. So what happens is, as you take these decisions, as the thoughts go back into your samskaras, good thoughts come up. And it becomes easier. Your programming becomes in alignment with, with what you want to do in life. So that's what he said. You take a decision. Meditation works in that way. It keeps on consciously putting a thought. The sacred mantra which many of you we have received when you repeat that you see the tendency of the mind is to go jump like a monkey from tree to tree. Monkey climbs up a tree and doesn't climb down a tree. It sees another tree goes from branch to branch. Gets another branch nearby leaps to the next tree. Leaps to the next tree. And our thinking is like that. You think about a good day Nice day for driving. Driving, you think about the car, and you see the car in front, that was a red Ferrari. Red cars are nice, you think. And then my friend had a car like that. I wonder how he got the money for that car. Oh, he's in banking. I should have gone to banking. And then how bad my job is. So you see how it's going from this to this to this. And all the time it's happening. One way the mantra functions, only one very simple way, the deeper ways. But one way the mantra functions is, it doesn't allow the monkey to jump from tree to tree, the monkey of the mind. It keeps it on the same tree because you repeat the mantra, mind goes elsewhere, again you repeat the same mantra. Mind goes elsewhere, again you repeat the same mantra. It brings it back again and again. It cuts that kind of monkey-like hopping from tree to tree of the mind. So that's how the mantra works, but of course there is a deeper mystical significance to the mantra. It's not, it's not just psychological. Okay i have more or less covered what i wanted to in the first session except one thing which i'll carry over to the next session we have run out of time for the first session okay one or two questions now your question was that grieving does it still happen yes if there are powerful thought streams it will not be easy to give up on uh, to to replace that with uh, positive thoughts immediately but you know grief also dies down with time otherwise we could not survive People could not survive. It will go down with time. If it's a very close and dear one, it will never truly go away. But it will go down with time. The mind repairs itself. And then you can use the positive method. Um, Yes, there's a question. There are many reasons why certain things come up. One thing could be our environment. What, you see, our environment throws hooks into our mind. So, That's how advertisements work. You see on the screen something nice. There's a person with a iPhone. He's smiling. I want to be happy. He's happy. And he's got an iPhone. Okay, iPhone equals happiness. So, the environment is throwing a hook into my mind. And it catches on to things which are there already in the mind. And pulls out certain kinds of fish from the lake of the mind. That's one way. From the environment. So, the environment is very important. Where, with whom we associate what sort of things do we see what sort of things do we hear what will be summoned what demons will be summoned out from our subconscious that's one the other is if there are exceptionally powerful forces in the subconscious that will keep coming up certain things we have driven into uh, for example in the negative side addictions and things which are there in the which have been driven into the subconscious they keep coming up again and again and again Same thing works in positive sense. If you take have a positive habit, habit of sharing, helping someone, nice patterns of behavior, uh, those will also keep coming up again and again. So what powerful ingrained habits keep coming up? They come to the door first. And also we believe the law of karma. In Hinduism, we, um, we believe in the law of karma. Certain karmas are ready to give fruit, give results now. Things will happen from outside, and we see certain feelings and things coming up from inside. So it's time for those things to come out. But that does not mean we do not have the power to decide. We still have the power to decide every moment. Questions? Okay. Yes, there's a question there. Can you help the relationship between samskara and vasana? Yes. So the samskaras, vasanas are um, particular types of samskaras these um, samskaras, vasanas literally mean literally mean that which is like a perfume. It might be a good smell or a bad smell, but what the uh, mind stuff is permeated with. And when they become strong tendencies, they become expressed as vasanas in the mind. Samskaras are deep in the mind; they are tendencies. They exp- they express themselves as uh, vasanas in the mind. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take it up later in the next session.